Last week, Jay talked about the heart of wisdom and about selfish ambition and how that is not the kind of wisdom that God calls us to. Uh, Today, we're going to look at two stories in Scripture, one from Proverbs 9, if you want to put your mark in your Bible, and another one from Matthew 25. And we're going to look at wisdom and folly today and think about and interact and ask God to show us things about wisdom and folly. If you got here early enough, you got a... Um, a little sheet of paper. Does anybody have one of those? So, thank you. I just wanted to point this out. I made this as kind of a little handout. What I did is that I took some of the common words for wisdom and the common words for folly that are in the Hebrew language and kind of creatively made this little character um, sketch of each of them. And so if you have one of these, you can take a look at this after the service. Um, if you have any questions, you can see me. Uh, the references to what I used to, to compile this are on the back of the one sheet. It was a, it was a lot of fun looking at it and trying to think of these, these words of folly and these words of wisdom that are interconnected, though not the same, and think about how they're different and how they're s- the same. And this is going to be very important today as we look at these two stories because we're going to look at wisdom and we're going to look at folly And we're not only going to see the fact that they're different, which I think we all know that, but also the fact that they are kind of similar in certain ways. And we need to be careful and we need to have our trust in the right places in order to actually receive wisdom uh, from God rather than walking in our folly that seems like it's wise, but it's not. Okay? We are a people, the human race is a people that easily deceives themselves. Remember James 1 and 2 talks about how we are easily deceived in our hearts, we don't remember who we are, we don't know who we are. So today as we walk through these stories, we're also going to be praying, and we're going to be praying via song. So as Joy leads us on the piano with the lyrics on the screen, enter into it as a point of prayer, not necessarily a song of declaration, but as a, as a, as a quiet spot of asking God to open your eyes, to open your ears, to open your heart to what he would have for us today. And then at the end of the service today, we are, we are going to take communion as all this is going to kind of um, come together in the person of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is our wisdom from God. And if we forget that, we're going to be really messed up in our search for wisdom because the Bible tells us to seek after wisdom, to get understanding. And yet if we do it outside of God, outside of Christ, uh, it's just going to turn into folly. It's just going to turn into folly. So when Joy leads um, the music, I'm going to ask everybody to stand up if you're able to. Um, We're going to be doing that three times. And then she's also going to be uh, reading the scripture that we'll be looking at. After that, she's going to say the word of the Lord to which we respond. Yeah, thanks be to God or praise be to God as we honor the, the scriptures and ask God to reveal them to us. From Proverbs 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live. And walk in the way of insight. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. 
She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So here in Proverbs 9, we have two invitations that are being called out to us. One from wisdom and one from folly. And the interesting thing about these is that they are different, but they're also very, very similar in their invitations and what they're asking us, the initial invitation to us. You know, we might get this invitation in the mail that says, you are invited to a feast or you are invited to a buffet. Okay, but then there's all these little details below that kind of tell you what you're getting yourself into. And so the, the writer of scripture here in Proverbs 9 does this contrast, and you can't see the words on the screen, but trust me, those are the words you just heard. And if you look, he's contrasting this wisdom and this folly very uh, succinctly down as he goes, as he tells about them. If you look at the middle part here, the first part of the invitation is the same. Both wisdom and folly are crying out from high places, okay? And they're both saying the exact same thing to start. Both of them are saying, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, and then there's this part B of it. But they're both calling out and both saying the same thing. It's like you're going down the road and you have these, you have these two uh, different doors there and you have these two different people standing out there inviting you and they're both saying the same thing. How do you choose? How do you decide which is wisdom and which is folly? Luckily, the writer in Proverbs also contrasts them. He shows us how they are different. If you look at the top and the bottom, these are, are, you know, diametrically opposed to one another. So both wisdom and folly both cry out to the simple. They both have the exact same initial invitation, but they are also different in so many ways. Okay, wisdom is complete. She is invested in the meal that she is preparing for you. Okay, she is complete in herself. She is invested in the meal she has prepared for you. Contrast that to, to folly. Did you hear what folly said in the scripture? It talks about stealing the bread. It talks about going and not necessarily preparing and investing and making these things with your own hands, but going out and stealing. Come to this feast. Um, my table is empty, but we'll go out and get something together, and you'll like it. You'll like this idea of stealing, as the text says in it. So wisdom is complete and invested, and folly is empty and seductive. Wisdom gives from her table. She has everything. That that line that talks about um, the seven pillars, this isn't necessarily this pillar is that, that pillar is that. Maybe it is in some deeper uh, interpretation of it. But what it is saying is that she is complete, that her table is filled, that there's nothing that you have to necessarily bring. She is going to give of herself to you, which sounds a lot like some other people in the Bible, specifically one person in the Bible that we know. Okay? So yes, wisdom and folly um, have this same invitation, but we look around them more. We kind of see what's going on behind the scenes or we notice their character and their character is very different. Likewise, at the very end, the rest of their invitation is very different. Wisdom says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Again, she has prepared it. 
Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Now contrast that to folly. The second part of folly's invitation, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasurable. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell, in the depths of Sheol. So wisdom leads to life, and folly leads to what? Death. Yeah. Wisdom leads to life, folly leads to death. But this initial invitation to it, you're not necessarily going to know the difference. Just because something has a label on it, doesn't mean that that's what it is. We can't necessarily go around and like uh, take those name tags and, and write wisdom on it and then stick it on something and then say, whatever I'm doing here is wise. No, Jesus says in, in the New Testament that wisdom is proven by her children. Wisdom is proven by her children or by the fruit that she produces. And we see that in James 2 where there's this carnal wisdom and there's also this wisdom from God. And ultimately, what's going to prove those things is our heart towards God and how the outworking of that situation happens. Does that make sense? So wisdom and folly are similar here in this passage of Scripture, and yet they are worlds apart. So the question is, you have these two voices calling out to you. You have wisdom calling out to you, saying, whoever is simple, turn in here. Come on, come here. You have folly calling out to you, saying, whoever is simple, Come on, turn in here. Come in. How are you going to determine the difference between those two voices? How are you going to choose the left path rather than the right? How are you going to choose the right path rather than the left? If these initial invitations are the same. At first, it's not necessarily black and white, and we have to look at the background. We have to look at the character of these ladies in Scripture. From Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So here we have two responses to an invitation. So let's rethink about this. What we know about Palestinian weddings uh, back then is not very clear. So there's a little bit of ambiguity as far as all the details of the story that Jesus was telling as a parable as far as his second coming. But let's say um, Jake and Steph are not married. Let's say Steph is living here at the church, and let's say that Jake is living with Ryan over off of 12th Street, okay? And it's the wedding day. It's the wedding time. It's time to get the show on the road. So for whatever reason, cars aren't working, and Jake decides to walk to Cornerstone from 12th Street. 
to come. He's prepared everything for his bride. He is about to come and get her from her place and take her to their new home, okay? And there they're going to party for seven days, okay? In, in Jewish culture, the wedding was typically seven days. So they're going to have this great party. So as Jake is coming down Cumberland Street, he's holding something that signifies who he is. Let's say that he also has a lantern. Let's say that he has a, a, a torch burning. And uh, let's say that Tony, who also lives in one of the apartments upstairs, is on the roof for some reason. I don't know, maybe he's drinking some Coca-Cola and just hanging out in the, in the night. And he's watching out, and he sees this light way down Cumberland Street, maybe, you know, at, the, at a 9th Street or so, and he sees this light coming, he knows, ah, that's Jake. That's the groom. He's coming for his bride. And so he runs down, and he comes and say, the, the Felds, or the to-be Felds, invited 10 of us. We really want you in our wedding ceremony. We really want you to be part of the special day. We are inviting you to be um, at this intimate place with us. So we want you to wait outside of Cornerstone underneath. And when you see Jake come, we want you to to, uh, light your lanterns and wait for him so he knows exactly where he's going. And then we're going to escort the bride and the groom back to their place or back to the father's house, back to the party. Let's just say that. Okay, And so 10 of us take this invitation and we're really excited about it. And so Jake comes down. Tony's like, okay, it's time to roll. Let's go. Rather than a lantern and something like this, it was probably a torch. It was probably a stick wrapped in some type of uh, gauze that had you would dip it in oil. Okay, Again, this is very um, iffy. don't exactly know. But for the sake of illustration, let's pretend that's how it is. And so they hear that Jake is coming. The groom is coming. So they light their torches the initial time. The thing about it is, is that Jake is just taking his time. Is he excited to see Steph, to see the bride? Yes. But he also has a lot running through his mind. He has, you know, there's all the stuff that's going to be going in the next seven days. He's like, is my mom going to go crazy in the middle of the wedding ceremony? What is happening? Is my dad, where's my, where's my dad at? My brothers were supposed to get the ring. Did they get the ring? Are they going to show up with the ring? So he has a lot in his mind. So while he's going faithfully to Stephanie, it's also, he's also being delayed, let's say, with his thoughts. And in that time of delay, five of our lanterns, five of our lights, five of our torches go out. And we're like, oh no, this is not good. And so we go to the other five who, for some reason or other, remember to bring extra oil, to bring extra fuel for the fire. And they're saying, we, we need oil from you. We need this oil or else our, our lamps are not going to be able to stay lit the whole way back to the party. And the wise are saying, I can't. If we do that, if we share the oil, we're going to get up to, we're going to get up to like, I don't know, 7th Street, a block away, two blocks away, and all of our lanterns are going to be out. We're not going to actually make it to the party. And that's going to look very bad as far as us being invited into the sacred thing with Jake and Steph and not being prepared. And so it's the middle of the night, and luckily, um, you know, there's a 24-hour thrift shop or we have like a million thrift shops or secondhand stores in Lebanon. So one of them is open late at night. And so these five people that let their, uh, like that they didn't bring oil go to that thrift shop to get oil. But in the meantime, Jake arrives. And then the five wise people, the five wise virgins, according to the story, go with him and the bride and they go back to the party and they enter the party and everybody else is there and they're clapping, they're celebrating, they do their marriage vows, all of this. And then they lock the door. They lock the gate. Nobody else can get in after that. And then the five foolish people show up. The five of us show up late because we were unprepared. 
and they knock. They're like, okay, let us in, we're here now. And Jake, not being, um, he's being hard but not harsh. He's being very stern. He says, I do not know you. Surely I do not know you. And he doesn't open the door for them. That does seem harsh, but remember, it's a parable, it's an illustration. And so the plain meaning of this text between the wise and the foolish virgin is that the, the bridegroom, Christ, is going to return for us. That that's, a, that's, a, that's not a concept. That's, that's, that's going to be a historical event. And I understand us, uh, post-enlightenment error, like to take certain things like that that seem fantastical, because that is fantastical, the fact that Christ is going to return, that somebody, he's going to be flying on clouds and stuff, I get it. I get it, that it seems weird and everything. And yet it's the truth of scripture. So he is coming back for his church and to recreate the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. But he's telling us in all of these stories that are linked to Matthew 25 that I'm going to be delayed. It's going to seem like I'm delayed. And this is one of his parables to say, I'm going to be delayed. You need to endure. Be prepared at all times, okay? So that's the plain message of, of um, Matthew 25, as far as the wise and the foolish virgins. And so we need to be prepared. Some people want to say, well, what's the oil? What's the oil? If we can figure out what the oil is, then we're good. You know what, if this equals this and that equals that, if we know what the oil is, some people think it's the Holy Spirit, some people think it's good works, some people think it's a heart of compassion. And if you have those things, you'll be in. I, I don't know that, I don't think Jesus specifically was looking to give an answer to that, to what the oil was. Because I think he kind of knew if we knew what the oil was, we would kind of fabricate this checklist and be like, oh, okay, I got the Holy Spirit. I'm going to buy the Holy Spirit or something. I, I got the Holy Spirit. I got these things, these things. I'm good. I don't need to really be prepared. Okay, I don't need to endure till the end, till his coming, until, until our death when we're resurrected. I don't need to endure. I got this. I'm good. No. I think he wants it to be ambiguous. Why? Because ultimately in the Christian life, it's not about this checklist thing that we go over a lot at Cornerstone, but it's about this constant seeking of the one that first sought us. This constant seeking of Christ who first sought us, the lost ones. Okay, so I don't think the oil really, ha- it has something, but I-, I think if we concentrate on what the oil is in that story, we miss the bigger picture. Now, if I were to uh, midrash on this text, if I were to go a little bit deeper and give a, an interpretation for the, for the sake of thought and for the sake of truth, I would say that there were two different responses when Jake and Steph asked us to be part of this bridal party. Okay, the one is um, based out of the wise heart of the, of the wise virgins. And that was, yes, I accept your invitation and I accept it with sobriety and I see this thing that is very sacred that you are inviting me into. And it's this sober, happy, delightful thing. But it's focused on the relationship of the bride and the bridegroom. Okay? There's this relational dynamic that's happening in the wise. Now I think, if I were to interpret in Midrash about the foolish, what I think is going on in their hearts is like, oh yeah, great, thanks for inviting me to the party. But in their hearts and in their minds, they are more concerned about the event than the people that are involved in the event. Okay? They are more concerned about being seen at the party. They're more concerned maybe they're single and they're like, this is a great time to hook up. Okay? They're more concerned with the fact that, oh, I get to dress up and I get to kind of put on a show. And yeah, yeah, I get to, yeah, I get to celebrate Jake and Steph and their marriage and stuff like that. 
And while all those things might be present as far as thinking about joining a marriage feast or going to a wedding, as far as, you know, those are logistical concerns that you have to be worried about to the most, for the most part. But what was the heart towards the foolish virgins, towards the, the bride and the groom? Was it that of, I want to be relationally and deeply connected with them, or is I just want to go to this event? It's not hard to see that, that transfer over then into cur- current church culture. Is it just the fact that I'm going to church and that means that I'm, I'm in, whatever that in means? I've been invited by Christ into, into this thing, and so I show up. But am I really concerned about that relational dynamic between him and I, between me and others, or am I just showing up to an event? If we contrast these, these two, the wise and the foolish uh, ladies in this story, we see their similarities. Both were invited, okay? Both chose to serve. Both had lanterns. Both became drowsy and both heard the call that the bridegroom is coming. Jake is coming. Wake up. Let's go. The one difference between them is one had oil and one did not. And what I would say is one had a heart towards the person of the church, of the head of the church, Christ, and the other was more so this event that was happening, this thing of um, more focused on self than on others. Okay, there's a big difference between um, a marriage feast and a buffet, You know what I mean? A marriage feast and a buffet is not the same thing, even though they have similar things, right? Like there's all of this food that's just spread out there for you, usually delicious, and you get to be with people and everything else. But the thing with the buffet is that it's usually self-serving. Like it's about eating, it's about filling yourself, it's about filling your gut. Where a marriage feast, yeah, you partake in this awesome food that is provided by the host, but it's really to honor the host and and the groom and, and his bride. It's to honor them. It's not about you being filled. It's about you honoring the people that have invited you, okay? And so there's the similarity between the the wise and the foolish, but there's also this different, I think that I would say this heart difference that's in the middle there. And again, as Christians, we're often tempted to turn our faith into a social club that we show up, we do this. It could even be ministry, but there isn't this, this heart connection or the seeking out of, of God through Jesus Christ. And yet that's what, we, what we're told life is. Eternal life is this, as Jesus says in John 17. Eternal life is to know the one true God and to believe in the one he sent, who is Jesus Christ. And so there's this folly over here whispering in our ear, Okay. There's this folly inviting us into this thing that at first seems like, oh, okay, cool. But again, there's this context, there's this subtext of character and heart and of the spirit moving and wisdom that we need to be attuned to in our hearts and in our minds so we can hear the voice of the Lord. Not only hear, but repent. Oh, I really want to go to Jake and Steph's wedding because I really want to dance with my wife, who is a fabulous dancer, by the way. Love dancing at weddings. But if that's the main reason I'm there to, to go... I'm dishonoring the bride and the groom. I'm not seeking their best. And then things are forgotten because our heart, my heart is not turned towards them. Who is the wisest man in the Bible? I mean, besides Jesus. Okay, Sunday school answer. Solomon, thank you. His story really bothers me as I think about wisdom and the seeking of wisdom. Because of the fact that at the beginning um, as he's becoming king, he prays to God and God answers his prayer and gives him wisdom. And 
he's the most wise man of his time, okay? He wrote so many proverbs, built a kingdom, had women issues. That wasn't the wise part. And yet at the end of his life, as being the wisest man there was, at the end of his life, he's kind of in this almost ambiguous place, like what's going on? It says that because of his wives, because of their foreign gods, because of their idols, his heart was turned away from the Lord. How is it that the wisest man in Scripture turned his heart? How did he not see that coming? Like, how is that? And so it really bothers me that because (laughs) to some degree I feel like it's, okay, as long as I get wisdom, if I listen to Proverbs 2 and 3 and seek after wisdom and get wisdom and God gives me wisdom, you know, I can kind of be on, on uh, you know, coasting or something. Like, like wisdom is salvation, but it's not. Otherwise, salvation as in eternal life, as in knowing the one true God, knowing intimately, as in following him and listening to him. If wisdom was everything, Solomon's heart would not have been turned away. And so I think a lot of times we can take certain things and say, as long as I get this, as long as I get wisdom, everything will be peachy. I will be in. But that's not what we see in Scripture. That's not what we see with Solomon. And it bothers me because of that. We cannot divorce wisdom from God. Because if we do, if we divorce wisdom from God, either what ends up happening is that we end up like Solomon, or if we try to do wisdom without God, it looks like the carnal wisdom that we see in James 3. The wisdom that is actually filled with um, bitterness, bitterness, bitternessness, sorry, and selfish ambition, and stuff that is not towards the other, that is not towards God. And again, a lot of times we do this. We try to do Christianity, we try to do our faith without Christ, without God. How is that even possible? We know we do this. Again, we make it into the social club, we make it into this event on Sunday mornings, and again, the, the, the background of that is fine. We're called to gather together. We're called to minister to each other. And we should be doing those things and putting our faith into actions because if we don't, you know, we end up like that. Faith without works is dead. But this isn't a humanitarian, quote-unquote, organization. The church is not that. The church is the beloved of God. The church is the bride of the groom. There's this intimate connection with the church, with us, and Jesus. And so we need to humble ourselves and realize that to some degree, all of us are fools. All of us are fools. We might seek wisdom, but ultimately there's going to be, if you, if you would look at that, if you look through that paper, one of the, that I handed out, one of the fools is just the ignorant fool, meaning that you don't even know the simple one. You don't even know you're going down the wrong path. So how do we get, how do we get adjusted? How do, if, if this thing within us is if there's foolishness within our hearts, how are we even going to choose the right relational dynamics of the Christian faith? How are we even going to do that? You've heard me say multiple times that I think one of the things that the church and we see over and over again in the Old Testament is that they suffer from spiritual amnesia. That we suffer from this thing that we get a hold of God 
We seek him and we, we grab onto him, but then we forget kind of like the core base of who he is and who we are in him. That you are a son and daughter or daughter of God in Christ. Okay, we forget these things. We forget that we're supposed to lay down our lives and love others. We're supposed to love others as we love ourselves. These six paintings up here from an artist in 1967, excuse me, my dates are going to be a little off, he, he did a self-portrait of himself. And so it's pretty good as far as like there's depth, there's perspective, everything is together in the right way. But then um, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in, I don't know, the early 2000s, and one of the A's of Alzheimer's is amnesia which means that you forget things. You forget certain, even your brain forgets certain motor skills, okay? And so over the next five years, what he decided to do was do a self-portrait of himself to see what he remembered of himself and of his skill. And so you can see it as it goes down. You know, this was 2005, 2006, 7, 8, 9. And you can see how the loss of depth has escaped him. You can see how as he's struggling with this amnesia, the article said uh, about him, it said that he knew he was doing something wrong. He knew as he put the pen or the brush to the paper that he knew something was wrong, but he couldn't, he couldn't figure it out why because of this horrible disease. And he died about four or five years later, unfortunately, as, as most uh, Alzheimer's patients, if not all, do. And so this acts as a parable to us too. This acts as an illustration to us. The fact that we as the church, if we do not remember Christ in all things, we forget about the depth, we forget about the perspective, we forget about who we are, and more importantly, we forget who God is. This isn't a once and done thing, the Christian faith. That would be folly, that would be foolish. But a constant seeking after to strive to to enter into his rest to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to listen to the voice of the wise and not the voice of, of, of the foolish. But there's still this thing in us, because we are fools, that we need something outside of ourselves to come to us and to rescue us. And that takes humility. All the time it takes humility. Maybe that's the only thing in our Christian faith or the, the first thing that is of our responsibility, is our humility. Our humility to listen our humility to receive. So today, there was invitations from wisdom and folly that we heard about in Proverbs 9. There are these two uh, responses to wisdom that we heard about in Matthew 25. And now I'm inviting you to another place, to another table. I'm inviting you to a place to remember, okay? So today, as we take communion, I want us, I want you to remember as much as you can, to ask God to fill in your heart and to fill in the cracks of your being with the totality of himself. Is that possible? No. Ask him to do it anyway. Might it kill you? I remember in Jeremiah somewhere, it talks about how Jeremiah says to the Lord, he's like, Lord, rebuke me, correct me in your love, but do it with gentleness. You know what I mean? So there's this desire in Jeremiah for the things that are forgotten, for the things that need to be filled in, the things he doesn't even know about because in certain areas he's ignorant and foolish of them to be filled in from God outside. So as we enter again into prayer through song and through worship, this table is going to be open for you. 
okay? Team, you guys can come up a while. And as you come to this table, and take, take a minute or two, we're going to do three or four songs at the end. There's no rush here, okay? I kept the word short so we had time to commune with God in this fashion. I'm asking you to do the impossible, okay? I'm asking you to remember all that you can remember and all you can't remember about who Christ is and about who Jesus is. So I, I, I wrote down four things that I want us to focus on to at least help to guide us. So I want us to remember that sin has separated us from God, okay? The communion is not this hallmark sentimental card. Like, God's forgiveness is so great because our iniquity towards him is so great. You know, that's, what, that's at the heart of forgive your enemies, love your enemies. Can you imagine everything that God has felt and the iniquity of the world? And not just at this time, but through all time. To remember our foolishness, to remember that sin has separated us, but that God showed his love in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And he invites us in, he invites us to this table. He says, I got you covered. So remember that sin has separated us and God has brought us back to himself. I want us to remember God's wrath towards us and how it's just because of the idols of our heart. And again, the fact that it's not that in his forgiveness and in his love that wrath didn't exist. It's that that, that, that exemplifies that exponentially increases his love for us. The fact that he can do that, the fact that he can divorce us from sin, that he can send our sin away from us as far as the east is from the west, that he can separate it from us. And that that wrath that we see all over the Old Testament, and there's wrath in the New Testament too, is just because of the idols of our heart, and yet he covers us. That yet he covers us because of his love for us. I want us to remember our individual foolishness, how we make mistakes, how we miss the mark. And also remember that God's foolishness, a.k.a. Jesus Christ crucified, is wiser than our wisdom. Okay? That God's foolishness, as it says in 1 Corinthians, which Jay is going to get into the next two weeks, that God's foolishness is wiser than our wisdom, than human wisdom. And his weakness, sending himself, sending his son, to die on a cross is stronger than our strength. So you're invited to this table today to remember that. And finally, you're invited to this table today to remember our communal brokenness. Hurtful things have been done between people here. Whether ignorantly, or whether intentionally, or whether we're just uh, stupid, as one of the foolishness words translates. Okay? To remember that there are these things, these rifts, sometimes in our congregation. And to say that Cornerstone has not had any rifts in our congregation is to not be humble and to not rely on the grace of God. So we need to remember our corporate brokenness and we need to remember that Christ has called us to forgive others as, as he has forgiven us. We need to remember our corporate brokenness and how Christ has called us to love others because he first loved us. So I'm asking you today as you come to this table that God is inviting you to partake of him, of his life, to be solemn and, and uh, sober about it, 
and to also rejoice in it. You know what I mean? We, can, we might not be able to perfectly hold those things together, but we can seek God in both of those things. Ben and Tanya, if you want to come up. We also, for those who have uh, slight food allergens, we also have, um, is it gluten-free? Yeah, gluten-free bread, if you would like, just let um, the Bernards know as you come down. Remember, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. This is God's invitation to you into his life. The last thing I want you to remember from 1 Corinthians 1, which Matt, Matt said um, a couple weeks ago, again, which Jay is going to be coming in, that Christ became for us wisdom from God. Christ is our wisdom. Should we seek wisdom? Absolutely. It says that in Proverbs. Should we seek Christ more and ask him for wisdom? Yeah. Again, wisdom without God is going to become carnal. We're going to end up like Solomon. We need to stay focused on Christ as we love one another, as we ask for wisdom. Okay? Christ is wisdom from God. He is the power of God. He is our sanctification and our redemption and our righteousness. Here at Cornerstone, um, you're invited up anytime over the next 15 minutes or so. Uh, you want to take off a chunk of the bread and dip it in to the cup. Uh, feel free to take it here or go back to your seat. Feel free to bodily worship if you need to kneel somewhere, if you need to be on your face, if you need to raise your hands. The Lord is also redeeming our bodies one way or another to come, so we should worship him with our bodies as well. So this uh, table is open to those who want to remember Christ and who he is and who he has called us to be. First Corinthians 1. Um, 20, verse 26 to the end. Remember, remember. And some of your translations might say, consider, consider, think back. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful, powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Jesus Christ. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Um, She's just a powerful statement on wisdom and folly and how we typically view it. And it's so hard for us to get out of the mindset that the things of this world actually aren't powerful. They actually don't have life. And the things of Christ, which seem foolish, like the cross, like humility, like brokenness, like suffering, are actually really powerful. And they actually change the world. And we can sit and try to rationalize it, and we know it. We, 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 we know our Bible. We get it. We hear it. We say, yeah, yeah, that's how it is. But, like, we have a tough time grasping it and living it and choosing in those things. So my prayer this morning is for all of us to live in that as truth, to live in that wisdom, to live in that foolishness, because that's where life is. That's where wisdom is. That's where the love of Christ lives.
So my brothers and sisters at Cornerstone, let us live in the foolish ways of the cross. Let us believe, let us have faith that those things are life, that those things are powerful, that those things actually transform. And when we are confronted today, tomorrow, next week, next month, every day it happens with a choice that would lend itself to the wisdom of the world, that we would choose the wisdom of the cross because it is there that love is embodied. And we want to be ones who live in the fullness of your love. As crazy it may seem, as, as stupid as people may think that we are, there is life and there is life in you. And so we remember our calling. We think back. We consider our calling and our life in you and know that that is the place where we choose your wisdom because we are called. So let us walk knowing who we are in you, Jesus. And as we do, God, let us see the world changing around us. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.